0: Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest DeVinny. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe be a little bit entertaining as well. So, you have finally started reading the book of Revelation. I've been preaching on it for three weeks. This is the first week where you've actually been reading it. We'll get through, I believe, the first six or seven chapters by the end of the week. Obviously, you won't finish the book till the end of the year. Um, So we'll talk about Revelation a bit. This is going to be kind of an odd uh, podcast this week. It might be a little short because, well, I've preached pretty heavily out of these opening chapters of Revelation so far, actually. Um, So I don't want to cover too much material that I've already talked about, but I do want to go over some things in these books, in these chapters. Uh, I'll, and I'll briefly touch you, are reading through um, in the Old Testament what are called the minor prophets. Uh, okay, so you have the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, I can never remember if they include Daniel in that or not. Um, but the, the minor prophets are are the last books of the Old Testament, these really short prophetic texts at the very end of the book and there's quite a few of them Um, you've already read through some Hosea is one of the minor prophets Um, so you're reading through Joel and Amos and Micah and and of these we kind of know Micah the best because it has some really great highly quotable passages right like the uh, you know what does the Lord require of you but to love justice and to do mercy and to walk humbly with your God, right? Micah 6, 8, great, great, wonderful, quotable verse. It's actually on a plaque up in the wall of my kitchen right now. Um, we love that verse. It's great. Uh, Amos is is a great one, and, and I, Amos to me is a really fascinating little book because it's written uh, by a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during its final days, and he, he does seem to have managed to escape the invasion of the Assyrians into and, and lived in the Southern Kingdom. But Amos opens up with and it's it's kind of like, you know, if you if you've watched many horror movies, you know, the opening scenes where you've got one character horror movie or disaster movie, right? Either way. One character who who like he he knows something horrible is about to happen. He can sense Something is terribly, terribly wrong, but no one else around him thinks that's the case. They all think it's just business as usual. They all think he's crazy for thinking something terrible is about to happen, and that's the book of Amos. I mean, he's walking around his home in in Israel. He, he can see that something horrible is about to happen. He is going to... Uh, he knows. He knows that doom is coming, and no one think, no one listens to him. He's the only one who recognizes what's going to happen. Um, it's also maybe it's also like you know, if you, in like war movies, when things are going too good for the good guys, and only one guy recognizes that that they're about to get just clobbered, right? It's same kind of of thing. Amos is like the only one who can see the truth coming, and he has these wonderful. Uh, descriptions in the first few chapters where it's like they're they're not quite visions you know he he talks about a crooked wall uh or a a bowl of spoiled fruit and he uses these as images for the nation of israel and for what god is going to have to do and the really fascinating thing to me about those passages is they are not supernatural visions They are literal things that he sees when he's walking around town. I mean, he he literally sees a a, a construction crew working on a crooked wall, and they've got the plumb line next to it, and they're realizing that the the wall is so crooked, it's so bent out of shape, the only way to fix it is to tear the whole thing down and build a new one. And Amos thinks in his head, oh my gosh, that's what God's going to have to do with us. And that's prophecy. Being prophetic. um, Seeing the signs of what God is going to do in the world. More often than not, it does not mean having these supernatural, crazy, weird visions. Now that happens sometimes. Many of the prophets have those. Ezekiel has a ton of them. There are people alive today who have those. But Amos never has that. Instead, what's going on with Amos is he is so deeply immersed in the word of God, in the scriptures. His prayer life is so rich that he, he can see things that are fairly mundane, everyday things. And in them, he can interpret signs from God. They spark in him a connection. And he makes that connection between this this relatively mundane thing, a construction crew working on a crooked wall, and what God is going to have to do with Israel. And what that means is, any of us, any one of us, can be prophetic in the same way that he was. We just have to immerse ourselves in scripture and in prayer. In a way, you know, he's, it's a lot like, and maybe this won't be too relatable for you, but in a way, it's a lot like coming up with a sermon illustration, right? You're, you're trying to find something you see in your everyday life that connects to the message you think you need to preach. And, and people think that that is like just the sole realm of the preacher, that I'm the only one who needs to be doing that. But actually, it's good for you to do it too. It's good for you to be able to see things in your everyday life and interpret them as a metaphor for something God is trying to tell you. Because God absolutely 100% is speaking to you. God speaks to us. He speaks to every last one of us all the time. It is never the case that God just doesn't speak to you. It is the case that often we are not listening. Often we haven't opened ourselves up to hear what he's saying. And very often he speaks to us in the same way that he speaks to Amos. Not through like an audible voice booming out of the heavens to tell you what to do. Not through a still, small, quiet voice deep in your heart guiding you where to go. But through... Through these everyday things that spark a connection in you and make you think of something you've read in Scripture, which is, of course, the primary way through which God communicates to us, never forget that. The Bible is God's primary means of communication to us. Um, But if you want the words to jump off the page and, and apply to your daily life, you have to be so immersed in them that as you're walking around going about your business, you see things going on in the world that spark that kind of connection and make you think oh my goodness this is what god is trying to tell me i mean imagine imagine just walking around town and seeing a construction crew working on on something right maybe not a crooked wall maybe a clogged pipe and you think my god there's there's a clog in my heart that god's trying to get through right not a not a literal clog but there's something spiritually that's blocking me from receiving what God wants to do. Imagine having having that kind of mentality. That is actually what all Christians are supposed to have all the time. And I struggle with this too. Very much. It, it, it's We're not used to it. But this is what God wants for us. To be able to communicate to us in that way. Uh, for us to be so deeply immersed in his word and in our prayer lives with him. That... That everyday mundane objects become a means by which he can communicate with us. So that's what's going on in the book of Amos. I mean, there's more going on because he's talking about the northern kingdom and their impending doom. But that's, that's how God communicates to him. It's not through a voice coming out to him out of the clouds. It's not through supernatural visions. It is literally through all these little mundane things that he sees. And he interprets them as signs from God. And it turns out he's right. So Amos... Is a fascinating little prophetic book. I love it, love it, love it, love it. Uh, So, Revelation. Revelation. Um, You know, to talk about Revelation, it's going to start to sound really like I'm beating a dead horse. Uh, Because, again, this this book, it is so, so important. It is so important for our understanding of who God is, of, of our ultimate hope in God, and if every i mean it, it's it is the capstone of our theology it is it's absolutely crucial and it's been horribly horribly abused by many people and that you know, it's not an easy book to understand and interpret to begin with but because you've had all these people who have just terribly abused it who have read it with no imagination no understanding of Biblical symbolism and who have just insisted on imposing a literalistic interpretation of everything onto it um, for really no good reason. Now it's even harder for us to interpret because all of us, all of us were raised in a world where these literalistic interpretations of Revelation have been floating out there long enough that they've influenced all of us to one degree or another. And we really have to overcome that because there is so much in Revelation that's going on, and all of it is couched in this deep, rich symbolism, um, and it's, you know, it is a book that is written to people living in a particular time and place. There are real historical events it references and mourns about, but at the same time, it's also a book that is about our ultimate hope in the future, and that does try and give us some understanding of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It doesn't give us a code book for interpreting exactly what that's going to look like. It doesn't give us a, a code for interpreting when it will happen. It's not trying to do that, but it is trying to remind us that, yes, Jesus is coming back. He will fulfill all the promises he made to us. Um, it's, so it's important in that regard. But fundamentally, it is a book that that helps us to understand how to have hope in Jesus in the meantime as we wait for that return. Most of the book is consumed with giving Christians hope in the midst of darkness. Hope that's not based on things we would normally base it on, but but hope that is instead based on the knowledge that Jesus has already overcome that those who those saints who have gone before are alive in him and they are already reigning with him. This is supposed to be a a core part of our worldview as Christians. Not just that we have eternal life, not just that we know that death is not the end. Not just that we know Jesus is coming back, but that we know Jesus is already reigning as Lord of all creation. That the saints who've gone before are already reigning with him as his stewards of creation. That even as we await the day of the final resurrection, we reign with him. His kingdom has started. It is His kingdom is already bursting in upon the world. And obviously, in in the original context, there's a lot in here that is meant to encourage Christians who are facing persecution and suffering. And as I said on Sunday, this is where it gets really hard for us to relate directly because, of course, we really aren't going to face any of that, you know. People, people like to talk about how difficult it is to be a Christian in modern America and all the fears that they have about how the culture is pushing back against Christianity. But you know, the reality is the, the legal protections around the free practice of religion in the United States are stronger right now than they have been at any point in American history. It's true. Courts consistently side. Defendants in cases, or with, suppose uh, not defendants. Maybe what I'm saying is the courts consistently side with people who are fighting for the freedom, freedom of religion. The cases that have been brought against people, right, Christian business owners, who are being sued by people who think that they've committed some hate crime for not doing something for a gay person, right, a wedding cakes or, or other. I think one was a florist. I mean, the courts consistently side with the business owner and say that they have the right as a small business owner, to to allow their practice of religion to influence the way they run their business. Over and over again, every time. It happens. We get worried because we see these attacks coming on on, religion here in the U.S., particularly Christianity. Um, but the reality is those attacks always fail. We live in a nation that has decided and I think rightly so, to double down on the protection of the free practice of religion. Not just for Christians, but for uh, for all religions. It's a guarantee of a pluralistic society, which is, I think, a good thing. Uh, because as much as I would love for everybody to be Christian, I also know that God wants people to freely choose to be Christian. And, and this is... This is the wonderful part about it right now. I don't know that I necessarily agree with the decisions those business owners made. I don't know that if I owned a cake shop, I would refuse to bake a cake for a gay wedding. Even though, as a pastor, I would refuse to officiate a gay wedding. I'm, I'm not totally sure those are the same thing. But I'm thrilled to know that we live in a country where people whose conscience will not allow them to do something like that are being protected. We have that right. And it doesn't seem as that's going to change anytime soon. So we don't really have to worry about persecution. Certainly not successful persecution. Um, it seems pretty clear that in our country, the people who might try to persecute the church are going to fail. Even, by the way, the much hotly debated marriage act that was just passed by the Senate, or, or I guess it was tried, I don't, I don't know if they'll law has actually passed both houses or not, but people were up in arms about that. But if you actually pay attention to it, if you read the text of it, it includes specific protections for churches and religious institutions so that they are not bound by that law. It's even got a a clause in there, and this is the amazing bit. There is a clause in that law which states outright, it, it acknowledges that people of good conscience may hold differing views on what marriage really is. Think about that for a minute. They wrote into there a clause which states, We acknowledge that people who hold traditional views of marriage, who who do not acknowledge the validity of same-sex marriage, do so in good conscience and for valid reasons. That is shocking in today's climate, but it's there. We're being led to believe that we're under all this intense persecution, and, 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 you know, don't get me wrong, obviously there are people who would like to persecute us in this country. Obviously there is a, progr- a, a radical progressive element that that hates us, and bizarrely that radical progressive element is often part of our own church. But it seems pretty clear they're in a tiny, tiny minority. They're very loud. (laughs) They're very loud. But thanks be to God, we live in a place where our beliefs are actually ultimately respected, so long as we're willing to respect other people. And and I do think that that's the Christian thing to do, right? We can disagree with someone. We can we can know that they are objectively wrong while still treating them with love and dignity and respect. And of course for what it's worth. I, I think the folks of this church are remarkably good about that. Um, I, I've been parts of churches where people were not so good about that. You all are just masters of, of Christian living in that sense. And I'm so honored uh, to, to be the pastor of a church where, with people who are, who are able, already able to show love and grace and respect to people um who not only disagree with them, but who they believe are living sinful lives. And it's just wonderful to see it. It's exactly what Jesus wants the church to do. Thanks be to God for you all. Um, but back to persecution. So we're, we're, we will not have to really face, and no one, no one in this country in my lifetime, or likely in my daughter's lifetime, is going to face real persecution. That doesn't mean we won't face difficulty. It doesn't mean we won't be unpopular. And um, it doesn't mean we won't offend people. That's just the way that we have to we have to embrace what we're doing. We have to embrace that the gospel is offensive. People don't like being told the truth. They don't. People like to live in the lies that they've spun for themselves. We may never face persecution, but we might face hatred and anger. We might be unpopular. And you will notice that it is precisely that fear which has led so many Christians and so many churches and pastors to compromise their values. To attempt to adopt a set of beliefs that they believe are more friendly to the culture. This, by the way, is... I mean, I mean these are the exact arguments that are used by so many people who, uh, including pastors and bishops and seminary professors, who want the church to adopt a a much more progressive view on things like marriage and abortion and things like that. They always start with that argument that, you know, we're going to lose all the young people if we don't do this because this is how they all see the world. And then from there, they work back into Scripture And they work back into theology. They don't start from the Bible. They start from what the culture says, and then they go back to the Bible, and they try and reread it in a different light every time. And they'll deny it to their dying breath. And I know because I went to seminary with them. But I I see the process, how it works out. Um, I mean, conservatives do this too, by the way. It looks different, but they do. They often do the same process. They look at what cultural values they want to support, and then they work back into the Bible. Um, so everyone has to watch out for this. But you know, the, the, the amazing thing is, when I hear pastors say something, that, "Well, we're going to lose all the young people if we don't adopt these views. We're going to lose all the women if we don't adopt these views. We're going to lose all the, the non-white people if we don't adopt these views. And I've heard all three of those always that is coming from old white people usually male whose churches are old white churches when you find churches that are young that are racially and ethnically diverse almost invariably they are traditional in their christian views almost invariably it's very unusual to find a to find a church that has adopted um, the very secular progressive ideologies that actually has adopted, that actually has attracted a, a young and diverse crowd of Christians to come and worship there. It's astonishing. Because it turns out that the truth of the gospel, even though, even though it can offend at first, even though it can be off-putting at first, because it is challenging, it's difficult, It turns out it's attractive precisely because it is those things. Now, we we have to be clear about something. When we say that the gospel is offensive, that doesn't mean that we need to be offensive. It <laughs> doesn't mean we need to be rude or quick to judge or call people sinners. The early church was not offensive intentionally. They weren't walking around telling people that they're that God hated them for their sins. They weren't even really walking around telling people outside the church that they were sinners. They went to people outside their church and they loved them. They showed them love. They criticized those in power. They they criticized the wealthy and and the uh, and the elite because they weren't doing what they should have done with the power and responsibility that God had entrusted them with, right? They weren't caring for the poor. And so they would criticize them, but the average person, the normal person on the streets, they didn't do that. They loved them. They cared for them. They befriended them. Even as they believed that those people were living sinful lives. And we see this reflected in historical records, not Christian historical records, but Roman historical records. Over and over again, they are astounded that the Christians are caring for the poor. They're astounded that Christians would, uh, during, during plagues, they were amazed that the, that the Christians would go and and help care for sick people, even the non-Christian sick people. That was unheard of in their day and age. What I'm saying is, they lived out the gospel in such a way that they made it appealing and attractive even though the gospel was deeply offensive to people. This is part of what you find in Revelation, this idea that people are going to resist the gospel. They're going to resist it powerfully and ferociously, and they're going to be angry at the people who present them the truth, but the gospel ultimately overcomes because it's so beautiful. It's so deeply attractive to us that eventually it cracks through the heart of stone. For all the the judgment and the wrath that people think is in Revelation, there's a lot of deep love in here. And the story is ultimately one of redemption and hope. We can hope. We can hope that God will redeem most people Or at least we can hope that that's what he wants. That's what he's going to try to do. That's his dream. He doesn't want to condemn. He doesn't want to destroy. He doesn't want to annihilate. He wants to redeem. Now I'll say what I always say. If people choose to keep rejecting God, he's quite happy to, to just let you go. He won't force himself on you, but he will pursue you. We have a responsibility as God's people, as his church, to be in the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus, not just to individuals, but to institutions and nations to remind them all that God is real, that God is the Lord of all creation, that he's already one, that all that we see around us is already his. that he doesn't want to condemn people. He wants to redeem them. He wants to welcome them in. We see this time and again in Revelation. It's it's just hard to interpret sometimes because of the deep, rich symbolism. And we get caught up in reading these symbols and sometimes they're violent symbols and sometimes they're disturbing symbols. Um, And some of that is because John is often just recycling symbols from the Old Testament, particularly the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. But the moral of the story is the same. God wants to redeem, and and he's going to strike down the empires of this world who will attempt to stand in his way. But that doesn't mean he's striking down all the people. He's striking down the empires to get to the people. What we then have to think about is, okay, who are the empires that are actually standing in opposition to Jesus right now? And the ones that are going to come to mind, I mean, obviously we, we might think of, uh, of Russia right now um, because of all that they're doing. We might think of communist China, certainly one of the most evil empires that has existed in recent history. Wouldn't be surprised to see God strike them down during my lifetime. Not through violence, but through the incredible explosive growth of the Chinese church. And actually that might be, for us, a remarkable case study in exactly the kind of thing that Revelation is talking about. Conquering the world through love and mercy and self-sacrifice. I'm convinced we'll see Communist China fall, if not in my lifetime, during my daughter's lifetime. And it won't be through... A, a massive global war. It will be because the church in China becomes an unstoppable force. I'm sure that's going to happen one day. But we may want to think about our own nation. We may want to think about empires who we would are inclined to think of as as good. And I'm not going si- to. I'm not sitting here telling you. America's evil, you should hate it. that's not where I'm going with this. I'm saying we as Christians have a responsibility to be that critical that critical of even our own nation to think about to, to be willing to call our own leaders to repentance, to criticize when they have done something that's clearly evil, um, even if that means criticizing people we voted for and who we elected. And this is where I think so many Christians in modern America get it wrong. They think that they've elected someone and they've got to back them no matter what. But that's not true. The only person you had to back no matter what is Jesus. You are actually supposed to be critical of your politicians. You're supposed to be a thorn in their side. Because no one else is going to do it. Look at what our politicians get away with. They all do the same evil things and blame the other party for it. The crisis at the border is a perfect example. The separation of children and families, the the putting of the children in cages, that started under Barack Obama. When Trump got elected, the Democrats blamed him for all of it, and he got all kinds of backlash for it. He didn't stop it. You saw uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez faking a cry at the the border wall for it. And yeah, she was faking. I saw the picture. And this is not a pro-Trump, anti-Democrat message either. Because what happened when Biden was elected? Nothing. The cages are still there. The children are still being separated from their families. He didn't stop it. He didn't change it. Both parties are doing it. They're both doing this horrible evil. They're both separating children from their families and putting them in cages. It's unthinkable. But it's going on. They've both turned these human beings, who are made in the image of God, who have inherent worth, inherent dignity, they've both turned them into nothing more than political pawns. And what I see from Christians across the political spectrum is utter silence when their own party is in power. That's not what Revelation calls us to do. This is why I said on Sunday, we can't think of ourselves as belonging to any one political tribe. We're Christians first and foremost. We have to feel free to criticize our elected leaders no matter what. No matter what it may cost us. And the thing is, in the U.S., it's not going to cost us much. It just isn't. We don't live in a place where criticizing your government could land you in jail or dead. And if, if the entire church was consistently upholding our calling to be God's witnesses in the world, to witness to God, to call the nations to account, the world would be a very, very different place. Of course, that's only one part of what Revelation is about. So you just basically got an extension of my sermon on Sunday. You're welcome. The book itself is a a book of hope and peace. Our hope is in Jesus. It's it's a message that says that even though it may not look like it all the time, even though you may have trouble seeing it, God wins. God has already won. There is no power on earth that can challenge God, not successfully. They will try and they will fail. God wins. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So remember, as you read this book, it's, it's a peek behind the curtain. It's pulling back the veil to show you what reality truly is. God wins. The nations may rise up in, in an attempt to overthrow him. The empires of this world may think they are all-powerful and almighty, but they're nothing. They're nothing before the power of God. And because that's true, we should be bold in our witness to the world. We should be bold. And that witness is not just telling people that Jesus died for their sins. That's obviously a very important part. But that witness is also calling our leaders to account. Holding them accountable to Jesus, to the true ruler. And reminding people that actually he is the one who's really in charge. Anything we have on this earth comes from him, including any authority and power we have, it comes from him. We have it at his sufferance. That's our job. Be bold, because we know that God has already won. We'll be back next week with more on Revelation.